Chapter 10 A Regiment of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Courtney S. Regiment of Women by Clemence Dane. Chapter 10 Elspeth bore the news of Claire's defection with stoicism, but her motherly soul was disturbed by Elwyn's disappointment. Though she could not stifle her pleasure in its cause, she felt indeed somewhat guilty and was eager to atone by acquiescing in Elwyn's plan of visiting Claire while she went to church, and met her more than halfway over the question of an altered tea hour. Elwyn, who from the first had been fretted, though but half-consciously, by the faintly repellent manner assumed by each of the two women at mention of the other, was soothed by Elspeth's advances. Elspeth was a dear, after all. There was no one quite like Elspeth. For all her obstinacies and unreasonableness, she never really failed you. She could be depended on to love you at your worst. You could quarrel with her with never a fear of real alienation. Elspeth might not be exciting, but she was as indispensable as food. She was, after all, the starting point and ultimate goal of all one's adventures. Claire would lose some of her delightfulness if there were no Elspeth to whom to ensky on her. Elwyn did not see what she wanted with a mother, so long as she had Elspeth. She had said so once to her aunt, and had never guessed, as she was chidden for sacrilege against the picture over her bed, at the exquisite pleasure she had given. After the little coolness of the past few days, her aunt's fault entirely, Elwyn knew, and so could be unruffled. Elspeth's renewal of sympathetic interest was very soothing. Elwyn was glad to foster it by talking of Claire and Claire and nothing but Claire for the rest of the week. In church on Christmas morning, poor Elspeth, settling her spiritual accounts, begging forgiveness for uncharitable thoughts, and assuring her maker that she wished Claire no evil, could yet sigh for the useful age of miracles and patron saints and devils when a prayer in the right quarter could transport your enemy to inaccessible islands of the antipodes. She would have been magnanimous, have bargained for every comfort, Eden's climate and hot and cold water laid on, but the island must be definitely inaccessible and antipodean. Claire, too, had spent her morning, if not in prayer, at least in profound meditation. She felt stranded and was wishing for Elwyn and anthematizing the superfluous and intriguing aunt. Claire made the mistake of all torturous intelligences in being unable to credit appearances. She was being, as usual, unjust to Elspeth, Elwyn, and the world at large. She could not believe in simplicity combined with brains. A simple soul was necessarily a simpleton in her eyes, because her own words were ever too edged 
her meaning flavored by reservations and implications. She literally could not accept a speech as expressing no more and no less than its plain dictionary meaning. With any one of her own type of mind, she was at her ease. Her mistake lay in not recognizing how rare that type was, in detecting subtleties where none existed, and wasting hint, suggestion, and innuendo on minds that drove as heartily through them as an ox walks through a spider thread stretched from post to gatepost of the meadow he means to enter. Elspeth, whom she had considered a negligible fool, had yesterday startled her into respect, not for the kindly and selfless pleasure in Alwyn's pleasure that had, for all her little jealous anxieties, prompted the invitation to Clare, but for the totally imaginary cunning with which, in Clare's eyes, it had invested her. Alwyn's repetition of Elspeth's remark had enlightened Clare, enlightened her to qualities in Elspeth, which Elspeth herself would have been horrified to possess. Clare saw, in the manner of the invitation, a gauntlet flung down, the preliminaries to a conflict, with Elwyn herself for the prize, and the first warning of an antagonist sufficiently like herself to be considered dangerous, the more dangerous, indeed, for the apparently uninteresting harmlessness that could mask a mind in reality so scheming and so complex. She did not realize that if she did finally close with Elspeth with the intention of robbing her of Elwyn, she would have far more to fear from her simple, affectionate goodness of heart than from any subtlety of intellect with which Claire was choosing to invest her. She wondered, as she frittered away the morning, how she should best counter Elspeth's attack. She would call, of course, and state it would be due. She would not be judged deficient in courtesies. Elwyn should be there. She would ensure that. And she, Claire, would be exceedingly charming and very delicately emphasize the contrast between Elspeth and herself. It would be quite easy, with Elwyn already biased. Her eyes sparkled with anticipation. It would be amusing. She should enjoy routing Elspeth. And there was the case of Elwyn to be considered. She had been excessively nice to Elwyn lately, had in fact allowed her for a moment to see how necessary she was becoming to Claire. That was a mistake. One must never let people feel secure of their hold upon one. That little speech of Elwyn's last night, mocking and tender, she had thrilled to it at the time. Did it not ever so faintly shadow forth a readjustment of attitudes, sound a note of equality? That, though it had pleased her at the moment, must not be. Elwyn must be checked. It would not hurt her. She was subdued as easily as a child, and as easily revived. She never bore malice. Claire, who never forgot or forgave a pinprick, had often marveled at her, could even now scarcely believe in the spontaneity of her good temper. But Elwyn certainly had been going too far lately, was absurdly popular in the school, could, 
Claire guessed, have annexed more than one of her own special worshippers, if she had chosen. Louise, she knew, confided in her. She thought with a double stab of jealousy of the scene she had witnessed, but a few days since. Of Louise, fresh from her commendations, from her kiss even, that rare impulse regretted as soon as gratified, at rest in Alwyn's arms. She recalled Louise's startled look and Elwyn's contrasting serenity. She had not inquired what it all meant. That was not her way. But she had not forgotten it. Elwyn was hers. Louise was hers. But they had nothing to seek from one another. Elwyn, undoubtedly, as the elder, the dearer, required the check. Not little Louise. Louise's letter had genuinely touched her. She thought she would go and see the child, spend her Christmas day charitably, in amusing her. And if, in afterthought, Elwyn came round in the afternoon and found her gone, it couldn't be helped. It wouldn't hurt Elwyn to be disappointed. It wouldn't hurt Elwyn to spend a day of undiluted Elspeth. And Louise would be amusingly charmed to see Claire. It was pleasant to please a child, a clever, appreciative child. She would go round directly after lunch. The maid should go home for the afternoon. She laughed mischievously as she imagined the blankness of Elwyn's face, when she should be confronted by silence and a closed door. Poor dear Elwyn. Well, it wouldn't hurt her. But Elwyn set out gaily on Christmas afternoon, and first, escorting Elspeth to the lich gate of her favorite church, walked on as quickly as her narrow, fur-edged skirt would let her. The clocks were striking three as she turned into Friar's Lane. It was a cold, still day, and Elwyn shivered a little, and drew her furs closely about her, as she stood outside the door of Claire's flat. She had rung, but the maid was usually slow in answering. The passage was damply cold. It would be all the jollier to toast oneself before one of Claire's imperial fires. She wished the maid would hurry up. She waited a moment and then rang again. There was no answer. It struck her that the maid might have been given the afternoon off. But it was funny that Claire did not hear. She rang again. She could hear the bell tinging shrilly within. But there was no other sound save the tick of the solemn little grandmother on the inner side of the wall. Suddenly it occurred to her that Claire might be dozing. Claire never slept in the afternoons, but she did occasionally doze in her chair for a few minutes. She denied that she did so as strenuously as people always and unaccountably do. But Alwyn knew better. It always delighted her when Claire succumbed to drowsiness. A good sleeper herself. She had been appalled by Claire's acquiescence in four wakeful nights out of seven, and after a casual description that Claire had once given her of the arid miseries of insomnia, ten minutes' unexpected slumber did not give Claire herself more ease than it gave Elwyn. The possibility of such an explanation of the silence, therefore, had to be considered respectfully. If Claire slept, Far be it from Elwyn to wake her. 
yet she could not go away. Claire, after that unlucky clash of wills, would be doubly hurt if Elwyn left without seeing her first. But if Claire were asleep, residingly, Elwyn sat herself down on Claire's doorstep to wait until a movement within should be the signal to ring again. She was not annoyed. She always had plenty to think about, and it would be very pleasant when Claire did at last open the door to be received with open arms and pitied and scolded and warmed. It was certainly very cold. All the drafts of the town seemed to have their home on the staircase and to come sliding and slithering and undulating past like a brood of invisible snakes. She shifted her position. The doorstep was icy. She got up and placed her moth, her chinchilla moth, shades of Elspeth, her beautiful new chinchilla moth, on the whitened doorstep. Then she sat on it. Ah, that's better, murmured Elwyn appreciatively. She was grateful to Elspeth for reminding her to wear her muff. But it did not get any warmer, and the daylight was beginning to fade. She glanced at her watch, twenty minutes past three. Surely Claire was awake again now. But she would wait another five minutes. She watched the hands, marveled at the interminable length of a minute and was drifting off on her favorite speculation as to the essential unreality of time, when simultaneously the grandmother struck the half hour and she sneezed. She jumped up horrified. A cold would mean a week's absence from Claire, and a restatement of Elspeth's thesis of the advisability of wearing flannel petticoats and long-sleeved bodices. Also, half of her hoarded hour was gone. She rang again impatiently. No answer. Claire must be out. Gone to the post? No. Elwyn had been waiting half an hour. She would have returned by now. Impossible that Claire should be out on Christmas afternoon, when she had refused an invitation and was expecting Elwyn herself. She rang and waited, and rang again, and again, and yet again. If Claire has gone out, cried Elwyn indignantly, and subjected the handle to a final series of vicious tugs. The bell within pealed and rocked and jarred, gave a last hysterical gurgle, and was dumb. She had broken the bell. She had broken Claire Harthill's bell. Elwyn looked round about her guiltily. She felt more like nine than nineteen. The flight of stairs was still empty and silent. No one had seen her come. No one would see her go. If she went quietly away and said nothing about it, poor Claire would be annoyed. She always got so annoyed over little things. What a pity to have a fuss with Claire over such a little thing as a broken bell. She crept on tiptoe down the stairs and out into the road. Then she paused. Was she being mean? After all, there was no earthly use in telling Claire. Claire would never let her pay for the mending. Yet naturally, she would be annoyed to come back and find her bell broken. She would think it was the milkman or the paperboy. Elwyn hoped they would not get into trouble. 
Perhaps, after all, she had better tell Claire. Such an absurd thing to confess to, though. That she had been in such a temper that she had broken the bell. Claire would be sarcastic. Yet it was Claire's fault for being out. That was unkind. She would tell Claire so. She would write and tell her. She would write a note now and tell her about the bell at the same time. She retraced her steps, pulled out her notebook and pencil, and began to scribble. Dear Claire, I'm awfully sorry, but I'm afraid I've broken the bell. I couldn't make you hear. I thought you were asleep, but I suppose you are out. I must have rung too hard, but I didn't think you would be out. Heavily underlined. I'm dreadfully sorry about the bell. She hesitated. If Claire would let her pay for a new one, she wouldn't feel so bad. Yet how could she suggest it? It would sound so crude. If only Claire would not be angry. Absurd to be feeling afraid of Claire. But then she had never done anything so stupid before. Angry or not, Claire would never let her pay. Yet, should she suggest it? She bit her pencil in distracted indecision, till the lead broke off between her teeth. That settled it. The damp stump was barely capable of scoring an L win. She pinned the paper to the door with her only hat pin, a present of the forenoon, and reluctantly departed. It was a pity that her best hat blew off twice into the mud. Elspeth was glad to get Elwyn back so early. Had Elwyn enjoyed herself? Elwyn sneezed as she answered. Before the evening was over, Elwyn reeked of eucalyptus. End of chapter 10